Do dads hold the key to sustainability? How do we get gender issues right? And does greater women's representation in the workplace and elsewhere make the real difference for gender equality? Those are just some of the questions in this episode of Think Nordic, the podcast with me, Richard Myron, from the Nordic Council of Ministers. We're at the COP, the Global Climate Change Conference in Katowice, where, amongst other things, women in the environment is an issue that's being discussed. Now, as part of the Think Nordic podcast series, we'd ask you, first of all, to subscribe. You can subscribe to this podcast and the others in the series, which are on sustainability and food, via iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you happen to get your podcasts. You can also find the podcast on the Nordic Council of Ministers' website. Now, as to the subject of gender, the Nordics have set the pace in many ways through government policy, and they're well known for providing fairness and economic growth, uh, gender equality, and also social stability, a recipe that's envied in other parts of the world. The beneficiaries of this policy are numerous, and one of them is a woman called Faduma Daid. She was born in Somalia, and as a child, she moved to Finland. She went to university and then ran for president in Somalia. She credits her path to the time that she spent in Finland. Let's just hear what she had to say. I am the policy on the Nordic gender effect. Coming from five years of formal education to having two degrees, this is the gift that the Finnish government gave me. They gave me education, they gave me economic empowerment. And what made it possible was the fact that, although I was a mother, I had paternity leave. And so my partner could also stay at home and take care of the children. That was Faduma Daid. And as in Finland, throughout the Nordics, according to the OECD, 75% of women in the Nordic countries are in paid employment. Uh, the gender gap is narrowest in the Nordic countries. So should the world be following the Nordics, and is that indeed possible? Well, I'm joined by some guests who are going to help me hopefully answer that question. To my left, uh, there is Espen Barth Eida, who is our token person from the Nordics and our token male today. Espen is a former defense minister and foreign minister for Norway. He was also a UN envoy and has held other positions with the World Economic Forum and other bodies. Also, we're joined by Sharon Burrow. Sharon is the first female Secretary General of the International Trade Union Congress, and she was the second president of the Australian Trade Union Congress. Sharon, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Espen, let me start by asking a very short question of you. When you were Minister of Defence, equal conscription for men and women was introduced. Was it based upon principle or, or practicality? First and foremost, it was based on principle, but it also turned out to be very practical. We had uh, many years earlier opened up all parts of military service to women, but it was voluntary. And the idea was, which was shared by every youth movement, youth political organization from left to right in the country, was that if you have equal 
rights, you also have equal obligations, and we could not sustain a gender-specific social institution like conscription without also making that gender-neutral. So it was one of the last frontiers for making equal rights and opportunities and obligations to everybody in Norway. And I think it just was a culmination of a long journey in taking away the the physical gender and making just take away the political difference and the societal difference between the genders, and very successful in my view. So we'll come back to this, but a mixture both of an important gesture and practicality. Now, Sharon, you object to the term women's empowerment, and I just want to explore why that does not resonate with you. Oh, look, I just have a slight distaste about the fact that it's often used in a patriarchal sense. We're going to give you power. Women have power, and I think if you look through the generations, when women have taken collective action and uh, demonstrated that power, then the world's changed. And this is pertinent to the debate we're having today because when women have equality, when there is uh, equal treatment, there is trust. When people feel that security, when they're paid equally, when they feel at home in the workplace, that their career paths are not denoted by gender, that they are free to mix work and family responsibilities and they have the fundamental security of knowing that social protection, minimum living wages and collective bargaining, the rights that sustain decent work, that that is the base on which we can build just transition and get the ambition and the shift to sustainability. So once again, sort of echoing in a way what Espen said there, not tokenistic, but real and substantial, and not granted, but won. Well, I think we're over a world where men think they can grant women anything. And so if we don't have genuine equality and genuine responsibility, then certainly Espen is right. We don't have the basis for building trust and the change we need for the future. But just to move on from there, because I want to hear some of the views from outside this room and around the world about, I mean, there is a general consensus, obviously, between you two about the way ahead, the role of men also in ensuring gender equality, but views differ throughout the world. And we've canvassed some opinions, and we're just going to play those and listen to those now. My name is Mira. I'm from Kenya, and I was living in Nairobi before I came here. I used to live with my aunt and uncle. And because it's quite a traditional household, and that's how it's been for as long as I can remember, it'll be my uncle going to work and my aunt staying at home with me and my cousins. Men tend to do the work and women just tend to stay at home. Yeah. Personally, I don't think the father would want to take the paternity leave just because Kenya is a very traditional society. I've just seen the men always be at work and women always be at home. My name's AJ. I'm from Wolverhampton. I've got one child and I am self-employed. My wife is self-employed. So we've got an advantage compared to a lot of other people whereby we don't need to ask our boss whether we can take time off or whatever. So we work around it and we, we both do our fair share really. I think a, a paternity leave ought to be encouraged. I think there's a bit of a stigma at the moment that you know when people go to the boss and say, I need to take paternity leave, there's a bit of a sort of, what, you need to take paternity leave? <laughs> Isn't your wife doing that or whatever? And some see it as a bit of a get out clause, like you know being paid for taking a bit of a, a jolly. My name is Valeska and I'm from Venezuela. Well, I think in Latin America overall, they're a masculine society, so they're not really taking into account 
paternity leave at all. I think it's more like maternity leave because um, it's always the maternal figure that's taking into um, the responsibility of the kids and that that is just a figure of uh, basically providing income to families. I don't think they would see it as an opportunity but rather like a, like a punch to their ego if they kind of switch to the taking care of the kids. So I think it's more of a cultural thing that they have to change. Three voices there from very different parts of the world. Uh, one from the UK, even to some degree echoing some of the, the views held there by women and women's experiences in, in Kenya and in, in Latin America. Espen, to the outsiders, it seems that the Nordics, in a way, were, were pushing at an open door in terms of the cultural factors inhibiting some of the policies that you instituted. So isn't a Nordic gender policy good for the Nordics, but there are obvious barriers to introducing that elsewhere? Well, when I listen to these arguments that uh, it's about the traditions and culture, I'll tell you that in uh, every single Nordic country, if you go back to the 60s and early 70s, you will hear exactly the same thing. That this is not the way it works. You know, men always were, were out, women were always home. It was part of our culture until we changed it. And, and no culture is static. So it was quite the journey over the last 40 years, and it's still going on, it's not over, we're still working on it, but we got closer. And through this journey, these cultural inhibitions and cultural traditions changed. And gradually, not only women who were, you know, let's say, demanding their fair share, but also men came to grips with saying that actually we get a more just and fair society through these changes, it was not without obstacles. And it did crash against traditional culture. People used religious arguments and whatever argument you have. But now, you know, after this societal transition that we went through, this is becoming the new normal, and that could happen for every other culture on the planet. So I don't buy this culture thing, because cultures change. Sharon, let me turn to you. How do you measure gender equality? I was reading the other day, 60% of parliamentarians in Rwanda are female. 70% of judges in Slovenia are female, and yet that doesn't necessarily, those raw figures don't translate into a fundamental shift in where power lies. How do you measure it? How do you do it? Well, I think Espen's right. I mean, the dominance of patriarchy has been with us for ever, and it will remain with us unless you seek to change it. Now, change can come from many sources. It can come from dialogue and discussion about the way we want to shape our lives, and that's the peaceful way forward. It can come from revolutionary uh, upheaval. Uh, you know, m many of the gains for women in developed societies sadly were through World War I and II when men went basically to war and women had to pick up the, uh, the industry, the services, the, you know, work-related uh, base of the economy. But, but they were then reversed after. I mean, well, first many the were, paper. but some things were left. Childcare in France, for example, is a gold-plated system because, in fact, women didn't want to give it up. You know, uh, women just started in the uh, fight for the right to work in many countries that hadn't been there before. You know, you'd had the fight for suffragette and the right to vote, but the right to work was almost a secondary debate and then the right to equal treatment was really part of my generation, in Australia at least, the third wave of feminism, anti-harassment and so on that we see again the rise of today, was part of the 70s uprising around, you know, putting the rules in place that changed the system. I must say I believe in dialogue and discussion, but I also think if you don't have the rules, the legislative base, if you don't have the equality of treatment, then it won't be sustainable. 
But I guess overall, we do see optimism in generational shift. And until quite recently, I was very optimistic about generational shift. But the rise of authoritarianism in our world and the strong men, the Donald Trumps who've unleashed this wave of misogyny has actually, I think, uh, raised a whole set of questions for all of us and we have to deal with them. And the Nordic model can sustain that uh, challenge because you are much more open in discussion about it. I think for generations in my country and others, the younger generation talk a lot more about shared lives and shared futures. I know I headed up as the ACTU president the, the campaign for paid maternity leave for everybody. We'd bargained for it in strong unions, but for everybody, and that include parental leave. It's actually a parental leave system. But it hasn't really shifted the base yet to the extent that it should. So, Espen, you, you have said that you believe that paternity leave should be enforced. I mean, should you be doing this, in effect, by coercive measures, trying to introduce greater gender equality? Because that also, there is a danger of a backlash against that. I'm in favour of coercion in that sense, that when the family, when the couple is allocated a certain amount of time, that has to be shared between man and woman. There's not a police officer denying the husband going back to work, but it's just that some of the social rights of getting the paid leave will go away if you don't share it. So that's the element of coercion. And it came gradually. There was resistance in the beginning. Now, eventually, when employers look at the CV of young professionals, for instance, they will say, why weren't you at home with your kids? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with your work-life balance idea, right? So now there's a societal shift to making this not only accepted, but actually the norm. That's a very positive development, but it takes time. And, you know, when you look at the Nordic countries in 2018, it looks advanced, but there were many small battles, big battles and small battles being fought until you got to where you are today. Give me an example of, of a kind of an interim battle, if you will, that, that has marked the path. Well, I mean, in the 70s, of course, it was abortion, free abortion rights. Later, it was maternity leave, then the idea of paternity leave. It was access of women to all types of work, guaranteed or return to work after maternity leave. And there were battles throughout, right? These things didn't just happen. It was, it was taken through by strong women and some strong men and eventually being broadened in the political sphere. And now it would be almost unacceptable to attack it. So today, even to raise the issue of kind of limiting abortion rights will create a massive societal outcry. But it wouldn't have 30 or 40 years ago. So, so the, these things change, and, and Sharon is so right. I mean, you need the cultural adaptation, but you also need the laws, the laws in the country, but also the rules established in the workplace. Sharon, can you identify one thing, one central thing that you think needs to be undertaken to enhance, to advance gender equality in a society? Well, right now we're fighting for a convention to eliminate violence, against women and men in the workplace. That will actually raise the cultural uh, debates around the responsibility of workplaces to be peaceful and to be equal. And so if that's a base and you add equal pay and you add social protection, then you build the equality and the trust that says our world needs to be different. If I can comment, because I think people watching the Nordics from afar will say, well, we envy you, but, but you can do this because you're wealthy, you, you know, you're rich. Yes. Well, wrong. We got rich because we did these things. It's the other way around. Fairness, justice, and gender equality was part of the story that led to being balanced well, uh, welfare societies. So it was not like suddenly we, 
we became rich and then we started to think about distribution. If you wait too long, it's much harder to get there. So it's very much a story for, for developing country. It's a story of grasping these opportunities early and looking at some very interesting statistics that we found out when I was at the World Economic Forum, where you can see that the gender gap index, which is supposed to be low, I mean the low difference, is very well correlated with, for instance, high competitiveness and other positive factors. So these things come together. And it's, just by, it's not by coincidence, it's because if you really want to be a stable, long-term stable, wealthy countries, you need to involve both women and men in the workplace and the productive sector. And if you want to think about language and discourse, you know, middle-income countries, middle-class countries, which are more peaceful and more stable and more competitive because education is part of that, they are, in fact, fascinating to observe because you can shift the discourse then to say equal pay is essential because if you don't have equal pay, you're actually, uh, it's theft of family income. And so it shifts it from whether or not you should be paid equally to me or have equal opportunity, but my family is entitled to have an equality of treatment. And if one person is being paid less or afforded less opportunity, that's a theft from the family's opportunities. Now that's a different discourse so having an old traditional debate between the rights of, you know, patriarchy and, and matriarchy in societies. And yet there is a lot of fear. For example, the traditional model uh, such as it exists, men may fear losing their, their jobs because they see greater competition in the workplace. And I realise the, the object here is not to reassure necessarily people about what they might lose, but it's nonetheless it's important in terms of ensuring that this is sustainable within society, is it but not? But, you know, that's a myth around migrant workers, around refugees, around women. When we were running uh, the universal campaign for uh, parental leave, we actually had shock jocks telling me I would be responsible for the loss of jobs for every woman in Australia. We'd just say, yes, OK. But seriously, we know the economics. Anyone who studies Economics 101 knows the more income you have, the more jobs you create, the healthier and wealthier your society is because the tax base is there to generate health and education and other areas of well-being. I mean, when will we learn to be educated enough? It's a little bit like the climate debate here. 1.5, hothouse earth, it's a no-brainer. Let's just do it. But it's the same with all of these things. If people insist on denying the realities and the facts, then they create fear rather than create a positive attitude to change and sustainability. I mentioned initially in this podcast the notion of paternity leave. Looking at developing countries, unlike developed countries, the burden upon women is particularly heavy sometimes in developing countries where they're not only raising families, they're also sometimes working outside the home to bring in produce to in the fields and, and elsewhere. Is there not a danger when you introduce the idea of paternity leave that it sends possibly a negative message to those women where they might perceive that the men have an entitlement to do less in those societies? <laughs> well, let me give you the figures. Again, if you go back to economics, Depends how you calculate it, but women contribute around $11 trillion to the uh, dollar or euro economy or unit of currency economy. But they also contribute around the same amount in unpaid work. 
Now, I don't know any woman that wouldn't yeah. like to have some of that burden listed, lifted or indeed be paid for it. So let's get real about the facts and then let's start talking about genuine equality. Yes, and I absolutely agree with that. And I think if you look at the, one of the main differences between an advanced welfare state and a more traditional society is that, to be frank, in both societies you'll see a lot of women looking after children and the elderly, but the women who do that in the welfare state are doing it on a payroll, so they do it as their job, which means they get their own income independent of the husband. They also contribute to, to, to taxes later with that money, and they free up other people, women and men, to do other things. So you get a more effective service. So it's not that these things don't happen in informal societies, but they're happening in the informal economy, which keeps a large swathe of the society outside of owning things and having their own economic rights. And both for quality and decent work, but full employment as well, which is the basis of modern sustainability and security. We want to see investment in care. If you invest in childcare, aged care, health and education, they're good jobs, as Espen says, but equally, they free women to participate, you know, in the economy, and that's good for everybody from a growth sense. So, inclusive growth requires that investment. And one, one interesting, just to build on that, in many countries today, you see that women and men both take high, higher education, including university education. In fact, women and, and increasingly in many, so. And yes. increasingly so, even do better than men. But then you, then you still see that in many societies, you, you, you train a woman as a doctor and an engineer, and then she had the first children, and then she stays at home. Yeah. So that's actually, you know, her choice, maybe the husband's choice, but the societal impact is that, in, in quotation mark, don't get me wrong, you wasted all that education without using the talent afterwards. Much smarter than to make it possible both to have kids, be home, look after the kids, man and woman, then come back and continue your career throughout working age, because a modern society basically needs to make sure that as many as possible of working age population actually work. Because that way you make the system go around. And that has to be women and men. And then you have to make it possible for women and men to actually have a lifelong career and children at the same time. So let me just pause there just for a moment. We are talking about these issues in front of an audience here at the COP in the uh, Nordic Council of Ministers Pavilion. Do we have any questions from the floor? Hello, and thank you so much for an interesting uh, presentation from both of you. I would just like to know, I think you already touched a little bit upon this, but the whole notion of parental leave and, and how that is addressed in the different Nordic societies. Maybe you could also touch a little bit upon the differences you've seen between the Nordic countries and highlight those a little bit just to, to make the point that we're, we are different countries with different approaches to this. The Nordics are presented as the sort of the Garden of Eden in this respect. Espen, as someone who comes from the Nordics, what are the differences? an interesting question. I don't know if I know the exact details of every Nordic country, but generally speaking, we all have, you know, compared for international standards, generous uh, time, uh, paid time off, which originally, of course, was for the mother, then gradually it was opened up to the mother and the father, but uh, voluntarily for the father. And then eventually, uh, some of us have said that part of that time, for instance, three months or more, is reserved for the man, meaning that you don't have to take it, but if you don't take it, it won't go back to the woman. Now, one of the advantages of that is, first, of course, you, you basically train men to look after small children, and they get a better connection with their kids. But it also reduces another problem, which would turn out to be quite serious, which is that with 
when a, an employer was looking at a young woman, a young professional woman, maybe in the early 20s, he would see somebody who'd have three kids, meaning being away for three years, and that was problematic, maybe I'll go for the man. Now, if it's a young professional man, he will say, well, anyway, I mean, this guy is going to stay home with the kids too, so, I don't, so you take away that problem, in the time. you reduce it. It's not gone, but you reduce that issue, which was an unintended consequence of the generous leave. So it's becoming societally not only accepted, but the new normal that you share this responsibility. That said, there's some differences between the Nordics in the amount of time that is allocated to the man alone, but I don't know the exact details of that. Sharon, I just want to come to you here. Outside of the Nordics, what are the differences between the developing countries and where do you think gets it more right and, and where gets it less right? Well, it's huge. First of all, on the Nordic front, it's not the time difference so much, a few days here or there. It's actually the discourse in Norway that is a leader around the role and responsibility of men. And, uh, and indeed, that's the difference in the rest of the world because actually meant much of the developing world had quite generous maternity leave, but parental leave lags. And indeed, I uh, once embarrassed our own Australian government by having a rally where the developing country women stood up and uh, professed solidarity for the Australian women who universally didn't have the same uh, entitlements they did. But the debate around the role and responsibility for care and for work in the home is the difference. I know we're drawing to a close here, unfortunately, in terms of time. Let's go very quickly back to the original question. Do dads hold the key to sustainability? Sharon, is it dads? Where does the responsibility lie? Well, you know, I would say I wish. I wish dads held the uh, key to responsibility. But I appreciate the question. Certainly quality holds the key to, res to sustainability because if you have equality, you have social protection, equal pay, fundamental rights and compliance, so the rules and the cultural shift, then you have trust. If people have trust that they'll have an income, that they're valued at work, that they've got a place in a secure society, then we can make the changes. And it's why the union movement has pursued the notion of just transition. All these things are about justice and they're about the hope and the trust that people need to get the ambition, the ambition that's lacking right here in, uh, in the COP in Poland that will get us to a sustainable planet. Just transition. I totally agree on just transition and we need to go through a climate transition but also a societal transition. And, and I think the main message from those of us who believe in the Nordic experience is that this is no longer an issue for women or men who are interested in assisting women. It's a gender issue. It's about how we shape societies to be fair and just and productive and effective and able to change in a constructive way. And, and to reduce this very important danger of uh, elderly men uh, installing fears about change and trying to promise people to take back control or make America great again or make whatever great again uh, and rather look ahead to where society should be heading. Thank you, Espen. Ending, I think, on a note which points us towards the fact that this is not a, a linear progression to a point, that there is still very much to be done, both in the developed and, of course, in the developing world. I'd like to thank our two guests who've joined me here on Think Nordic for this discussion. Sharon Burrow, Espen Bath Eder. This podcast is part of a series, Think Nordic. If you want to listen to 
this podcast and indeed to the others, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Once again, thank you. This podcast comes to you from the COP in Katowice. My name is Richard Myron, and this has been produced also by Anouk Millet for Earshot Strategies on behalf of the Nordic Council of Ministers. Thank you. Thank you.